0: The show! You have all made it through
1: the dance. 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 You have all made it, made it, made it. Coming to you from the X Access. It's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 259. Your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, probably not my favorite subject. Probably something that you are exhausted talking and or thinking about, regardless of whether or not you support this person or not. He kind of overwhelms the consciousness. Who am I talking about? Of course, the president, Donald J. Trump. Now, I'm not talking to the president. I'm not talking to one of his sycophantic enablers. I am talking to the head of the Department of Communications at Missouri State University, Dr. Brian Ott. Now, I didn't reach out to Brian entirely to talk about this book. Now, granted, that's the reason we're here. He's done a number of interviews talking about this book and talking about the president, talking about our current moment with social media, all sorts of things pertinent to today. But more than that. I reached out to Brian because Brian was the inside member of my thesis committee when I was a master's student at Colorado State University. That's where I met Brian. I took a number of classes for him. I TA'd two of his classes. He is one of my absolute favorite people to talk to. And I mean that on the entire earth, Brian is one of my favorite people that I get to converse with. He's a brilliant academic. He's got an incredible mind. He's got a very dry wit. And the way he thoughtfully engages with the world aligns very, very well with the way I view the world. And I think you'll get a sense for that in this week's conversation. Yes, we talk about the president. Yes, the president is exhausting. I don't care if you support him or if you are or if you are staunchly opposed to him. The amount we are all forced to think about him is insane and it's overwhelming and it is yes, again, exhausting. What's not exhausting is thinking about the ways in which new communications technologies inform the ways in which we connect with each other. So we spend time on this show talking about Facebook, talking about Twitter, talking about cable news, talking about places of public memory. At the end of this episode, we talk about monuments and memorials and things like that. That is an area of study that Dr. Rott is well-versed in. It's one of his life's passions. There's plenty in this episode to chew on. And irrespective of how you feel about the president or how you feel about social media or how you feel about cable news, the ability to be self-reflexive. And the ability to critique your views and your beliefs and your understanding of the world, that is really important because anything short of that, and we're losing sight of ourselves, we're losing grip of who we are. So conversations like this are what I crave, they're what I enjoy, and if it's with someone that I positively adore, then all the better. So I'm thrilled to bring this episode to you. I think you're going to get a lot out of it, and it's coming up here in just a second. But first... Got to pay some love to our sponsor, Four Degrees, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. We're talking about politics here, right? Four Degrees made its name building award-winning campaigns for candidates, for issues, and also doing work outside of the political realm. So no matter what you're doing online, if you're trying to build an audience, trying to build a coalition, trying to get your message in front of the people who need to see and hear it most, Four Degrees is the shop you need to talk to. Whether you're building a website doing some social media marketing, doing online advertising, whatever your campaign entails. Four Degrees will help you get the details right and help you get it in front of the people who need to see it most. So be sure to check them out on the web, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Now that we've paid the bills, let's get to this week's guest. Episode 259 features Dr. Brian Ott. He is the head of the communications department at Missouri State University. He is also the co-author of the Twitter presidency, Donald J. Trump and the Politics of White Rage, available on Amazon. You can find that on johnofalltrades.us or in the show notes, no matter what podcatcher you're listening on, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any of a billion others. His episode starts right now.
0: And I am just two weeks into that job and feeling very much like Greg.
1: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you yeah, you too with your never-ending bromance which I appreciate has persisted since you moved state lines. You left Colorado, you moved to Texas, and now you find yourself in Missouri. What times, yeah. man?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Texas Tech was was generally um uh, good to me and, and positive. Um I really enjoyed being the director of the university uh, press there. You know, you for, you forget just how much in your life you for, you miss trees when you don't have them. <laughs> and, and so, uh, it just after a while, I think it just kind of became clear that this was probably not a long-term stop. Windstorms, uh, are, uh, are, are, unless you've experienced one, you, it's, it's kind of hard. I mean, you can't go outside. Wow. You can't go, because you can't breathe dirt. <laughs>
1: What city was this in? I don't remember. (laughs) Lubbock, Texas. Oh, Lubbock. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, it's gotta be interesting. I've, I've always been curious about the path of an academic, right? Because, for instance, a colleague we both knew, Derek Sweet, Mm -hmm. um, ended up at Luther College in Iowa. And, you know, I thought like this punk rock guy, this very sort of guy I associate urban moves to almost like rural Iowa. And, you know, with an academic, there are only so many jobs that come open. And yeah. they're not always in the most desirable parts of the country. I, I mean, depending on how you feel, I, I don't care how you feel about Lubbock, Texas or, you know, Springfield, Missouri or whatever, you know, generally not the, the first choice is if you ask people where they want to move, yet that's where the jobs are. Yeah. So, I mean, have you sort of made peace with the calculus of the academic job and the academic life where you go, you know, I this is what I want to do. This is what I feel very passionate about. And I'm going to live where I'm going to live. Yeah,
0: it's, it's changed a bit over time, John. And when I say it's changed over time, it's changed in terms of my desire for the kinds of places that uh, I wanted to be. Academia is a job that you can very much do anywhere. And you, you, as you've kind of correctly noted, you have to really go where the jobs are in, in early in my career, I, those two things aligned super nicely where um, I wanted to be in the places that I was in. I mean, I, I lived in Colorado and I was there for 17 years almost. Yeah. Had, had you know, Fort Collins is a beautiful place to live, and as is as is Denver. And then an opportunity presented itself um, at Texas Tech, which uh, the institution intrigued me. Uh, I was wary about Lubbock before we ever went there, and uh, but I I really felt like. You know, I, I can probably spend five years anyway. And and it seemed like a, a great opportunity. And it was, I have to tell you, uh, again, the, in particular, the director of the Texas Tech University Press was a job that I love and I miss. That having been said, over time, we realized, hey, Lubbock is probably not a long-term uh, stop for us. And so we started to look to see what was available. And Springfield is a place that we actively chose. Oh, great. And and so Springfield is working out great for us. We've been here a little over uh, a month now, and we probably, you know, we have a five-year-old, and we've probably done more family-related things in the six weeks that we have been here um, than we had done as family in the past two years combined.
1: Even even during COVID?
0: Even during COVID, because so many of the things here um, are outdoor, activity. They really have a great park system here. Um, There's just so many um, things to, to participate. There's a zoo. Um here, and so, like when you have young children, those kinds of things start to matter to you, oh yeah um and and things like trees matter to you, <laughs> uh, and so we have big trees in our yard now and and so he can he can play in the yard, so this has been a really good move for
1: us. that's good, man you know, and I've been to springfield i my wife's cousin she has two cousins that actually live there, so hopefully we make our way back there and we can meet up and hopefully it's at Mother's Brewing, which uh is a great local brewery there.
0: That would be, that would be absolutely awesome. I, I would love to host you. So. <laughs> if, if you find your way in, um, back to this area.
1: No joke. Okay. So this is Dr. Brian Ott and you are department chair at Missouri State.
0: So the department head of communication at Missouri State.
1: Okay. And also the author of the Twitter presidency, Donald J. Trump and the politics of white rage, which you were nice enough to send me a copy of. Um, I am most of the way through it. Uh, unfortunately, I also have a four- and five-year-old, so I have not uh, had a chance to digest the whole thing. And it leads me to my first question because I'm old enough to remember a time when I didn't think about the president every single day. And this presidency in particular seems to overwhelm public consciousness just because every single day there is something new and something that, in the most charitable sense of the word – sparks a lot of cultural dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested, first of all, I I sort of know how this came about because I've read it, but I'm interested in you sharing how this project came about. And secondly, if having to dive into Trump's Twitter and Trump's speeches and you know Trump's overall manner, did that wear you out? um, Or is that just sort of an extension of the culture that we live in?
0: So I think you're quite right to point to exhaustion. Uh, it is exhausting to cover this president. It is, is exhausting to, to follow this president. Um, it's exhausting just to follow him on Twitter, <laughs> uh, because as, as you say, it's, it's sort of like, um, one, you just move from one crisis, um, to the next and there's always something shocking and, and new and novel that happens virtually on a daily basis. I did not start out in the field of communication strictly um, studying presidential rhetoric. Right. So that dimension or component of this, is, is a little bit off of the path that I had really walked up, up until um, the election of, of Donald Trump. But what drew me to it was I've always had an interest in emerging communication technologies and the way that they transform our landscape socially and communicatively. And so I, I've been following, um, the changes in technology that take, taking place in our communication landscape. And Twitter is obviously an important, um, dimension of that as, as our other social media. And so that was an interest of mine. And, of course, I've always had an interest in rhetoric. And so it became clear to me pretty early on, and when I say pretty early on, even before uh, Trump was elected, and, and let us not lose sight of the fact that people did not think he was going to get elected.
1: Yeah, and, yeah uh, yes. Uh, every step of the way, it seemed like there was going to be an off-ramp, and he successfully blew past every right. single one of them.
0: Right. And so my interest in Trump really started as an interest in the way he was using Twitter. Hmm. And that interest preceded his election as president. And so I actually published um, my first article about uh, Trump and Twitter, um, what had been accepted for publication before he was elected.
1: Okay. Was this when he was a candidate or just a citizen?
0: So this is when he was a candidate. Okay. Uh, And so when he was a candidate, I wrote an article about his use of Twitter. And and at the time of drafting the essay, I did not think that he would be elected. Then of course he was elected and it had, had not yet, the the essay had not yet gone to print. And so the editor very generously said, you know, like, if you want to edit this, (laughs) um, (laughs) you can. And I really felt like the essay sort of stood on its own, um, even though he had been elected. But I also knew that something transformative had ha- ha- happened, so I added an afterword to the essay. I wanted the essay to be published as I had originally conceived of it, and I added an addendum, basically, that said, you know, since I'm writing this article, um, Donald Trump has been elected president, and here are some thoughts on that.
1: It's it's almost uh, just- like uh, HBO Max airing uh, Gone with the Wind, but with the disclaimer and essay at the beginning. Where it's like, okay, here's what you need to know about the South at the time, and here's a little bit of additional context that is probably useful,
0: right? And so, in, in my case, I added this this section on, on the end, which is really sort of a break, really early initial breakdown of what I thought kind of happened in the election and how he, um, uh, he he came to win. And the other part of the essay, the only other part of the essay that I realized I didn't revise any of the content in the essay itself proper. Uh, the other thing I revised was the abstract, and I. And you don't get to make a lot of jokes in academia, uh, but I, 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 I added a sentence at the end of the abstract that was more or less meant as a joke, basically saying, welcome to the end times. Um, and that, it seems to me, has turned out to be prophetic, um, because even I at the time had no idea, um, just how Uh, badly, um, President Trump would be able to threaten uh, democratic norms and institutions. It's
1: been stunning. It's been staggering to witness. And when he refers to things like your phony emoluments clause, and you go, the phony emoluments clause, what are we talking about here? Or, you know, maybe one day there will be a president for life or, you know, railing against the Supreme Court or even saying Fox News doesn't work for us anymore. You go, this is explicitly the propaganda arm of your presidency, or at least you view it that way. And any sort of resistance to that Mm -hmm. is, is met with vitriol. Yes. And that you're right. That, that has been just staggering and enormously demoralizing to witness.
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, and and I think it, it should, should he be, I'm not as optimistic as some of the polls suggest that maybe Maybe we ought to be uh, at at the moment, because a number of the things that I think came together to help him get elected are still very much in place. And so I'm quite worried uh, about this election. And and I really think if uh, President Trump is reelected, that all bets are off. At that point, our democracy may suffer irreparable harm. And I think we're probably already headed down that path of irreparable harm. Um, He certainly has has done such a number on democratic norms that it would take a a consistent and conscientious effort to reestablish those norms.
1: Well, it reminds me of something that I have learned working in corporate communications. And it's that it takes a long time to build a reputation. If you're talking about a company, an individual, or even an institution that is seemingly as impenetrable as democracy, it takes a long time to build and maintain that. But it turns out it takes a very short amount of time and not that much effort to undo a lot of it. You, you've seen that with companies, and I think you're seeing that in the, in the term of one president, uh, the undermining of so many things that we just took almost for granted, but uh, almost took as rote in terms mm-hmm. of the ways in which we conduct our business. It's amazing how fragile democracy actually is.
0: Yes, I, I think that's one of the lessons that we've we've learned from this is that it, it actually takes a continuous commitment um, from an in, in informed public citizen, and,
1: and and good faith efforts from a lot of people. And I think you're seeing a lot of people not acting necessarily in good faith.
0: Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And look, many of the things that uh, that have occurred in the last um, three to four years. I actually don't hold, um, the president, um, certainly not exclusively responsible for, but in some cases not even primarily responsible for. I actually think Fox News probably is an, an equal culprit, um, here and, and, and Fox News has probably done more, um, damage to, um, cultural norms related to the democratic process, um, than Trump himself has done.
1: I think that's interesting too, because recently, There was a court case where Fox News was basically arguing that Tucker Carlson was playing a character that was essentially like nothing he said should be taken as truth. Yet that's not how it's presented. And you go, okay, well, you're trying to claim this in court. Who who of the viewers of Fox News is actually paying attention to that? You know, where Fox News is trying to absolve themselves of legal responsibility for some truly contemptible opinions. And alternate, to, to use the parlance of the president, alternate facts that are presented on that show.
0: Right. So so Fox News very much wants to have it both ways. Right. On, on the one hand, if if pressed, and, and this legal battle, it sounds like it's one of the instances, but really in the interviews, if Fox News is pressed, they'll be very clear that the vast majority of personalities on their network are not journalists. Right. And that those shows are not journalists. And so Tucker Carlson, um, Sean Hannity, who are two of the most popular hosts on there, they are entertainers Mm -hmm. and their programs are not news and they're not intended to be news. They are political opinion and commentary program, but they pretend to be news. And of course, you put them under the moniker or the label of Fox News, which is right (laughs) in the title of the network. Certainly, And you're misleading people a lot of people tune into that network because they think it's right leaning news. And what I have to kind of consistently point out is it's not news at all. It's just not news. Now, here's the thing I think that surprises some people when I'm trying to make this set of distinctions is I'm not suggesting that Fox News is fake news. I'm suggesting it's not news. It's right. not fake news. Fake news is a kind of propaganda that actually exists in our world today. That's really a product of our social media uh, environment. And fake news is a real problem in our world today. Not in the way our president would have us believe it's a real problem. Right. Because everything he labels fake news is actually just news that he disagrees with. Right. Um, or news that is unfavorable to him. Well, that's not the definition of fake news. Fake news is propaganda that is deliberately designed to misinform or mislead the public and yet is packaged to resemble um, news. That is essentially what um, Russia did in twenty sixteen during, during our uh, a pre- previous presidential election. That's fake
1: news. Right, right. I, I agree with you. That absolutely exists, and there are bad actors in the world who want to flood the social media channels with fake news in order to. And and it's funny. I I had a conversation with the, about this with a colleague, and it's not that they. Have a specific agenda. I mean, you, you, we can argue whether they do or not. My belief is that the agenda is just to confuse. Basically <clears throat> to throw a flash grenade into a room and as everyone's blinking their eyes trying to figure out where they are and which end is up, all the furniture has been rearranged. Yeah. So it's just chaos, uh, for the sake of chaos for undermining everyone's sort of, uh, where, where they find their two feet underneath them. When you have that, when you have discord, when you have confusion, uh, you can do any number of things because people are then operating from their amygdala.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I And so a big part of the, uh, of the book, as you know, is the focus on affect. And as it's, it's sort of simply as I can put it, for me, affect is, is really just, it means public emotion. So emotion is typically not something that we think about as being a public. It can be expressed publicly. But if you're experiencing anger, um, I may sympathize or empathize with you, but I don't actually feel what you feel. Like your anger is yours. So anger or, or emotion of any kind is individual. It's, 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 it's something that is experienced really by one person. Affect is emotion that's experienced publicly. And so one of the things that I'm interested in in the book is, is how did Trump tap into widespread sentiments or feelings of white grievance, because that's not an emotion. It's not something that one experiences individually. It's sort of a publicly shared emotion that a a wide group of people um, experience, and they felt aggrieved.
1: Right. And I mean, one of the things that you say right at the beginning is Trump's rhetoric is best understood as an extension, not source, of three social forces, fear and anxiety over the perceived decentering of white masculinity, the formal properties of social media platforms, and the uh, deleterious state of the news media, represented most obviously by Fox News. So what's interesting is it's a distinction that I think is important. He didn't invent any of these things, but he is probably mo- the most successful user of combining those three factors into what we have today. Is that a fair summation of the argument you make?
0: It's more than a fair summation, actually, John, because one of the things that you know, uh, people who write about this and study the president – it's hard if if you really kind of understand what he's doing to want or to even say anything nice about him. But the truth of the matter is, he's a pretty masterful community. Uh, i
1: I I would say to that point, I've made this argument before. I would say there has never been anyone better at using Twitter, which you called this book "The Twitter Presidency." And before I even knew of this book's existence, I used to make this argument. I said, I think the president uses Twitter more effectively than anyone else, and I think that is an intense condemnation of that platform existing at all.
0: Yes. My my position for a long time, look, Twitter has made a number of policy changes in just the last couple of months that I think are steps in the right direction, but I want to be clear. They're just steps, and they're they're pretty small, small steps. I don't think social media generally ought to be involved in our policy. Every communication platform, it doesn't matter what communication platform we're talking about. We can talk about cinema or television or newspapers. Every medium of communication has structural biases that are tied to that medium of communication. And the structural biases that are associated with Twitter and social media generally don't lend themselves well to um, educating the public, to an informed citizenry, or to doing politics. they're, They're really anathema. Uh, to those things. If I have a sort of an agenda, my only agenda is to, to help educate the public to understand that that social media generally, and Twitter specifically, is not where our politics should live.
1: No, it's interesting. I saw a meme the other day. It was a picture of Tom from MySpace. And it's like, hey, everyone remember Tom, who had this app that he created this this entire social media platform for people to connect with other people. And instead of getting involved in politics, he sold it for five hundred million dollars so that he could go live a nice life. You don't hear from Tom anymore. Meanwhile, you've got the leaders of Facebook saying, hey, it's not our place to fact check uh, what's going on. And it's like, dude, you own the platform. I, I think it would behoove you to do a little bit of QAQC here, because in the words of George Costanza, we're trying to have a society here. You know, Facebook is kind of like the Walmart of the internet in a lot of ways in that you can pick and choose and it all just kind of comes to you. It's a one-stop shop for the internet. I used to write on the internet and I actually miss the days of actual websites. You know what I mean? Because almost everything is fed through this algorithm that goes through Facebook. And when you have that much power, Facebook, if it were a country, would be the third largest in the entire world, probably bigger now. When you wield that kind of power... And you're unwilling to do basic steps to fact-check falsities. Uh, that that is indeed damaging to democracy and to our society, and I think our mental well-being as a whole.
0: Yeah, and and I, I agree wholeheartedly. And it's not just disinformation; it's it's also hate speech, right? right? So you know, we're at a particular moment in the United States right now where we're we're trying to reckon with a long history of, of racial injustice um in this country. And social media platforms, I think, are coming up short in helping us um, reckon with that, mm-hmm. because they're in, in in many ways, you know, um, they're part of the problem where um, hate speech has just been allowed to run rampant on many of these platforms.
1: You know, it's it's interesting to me too, Brian. You talked about there are structural—how did you put it? Structural,
0: structural biases. Structural biases.
1: Right, and I used to sort of lament. Um, the barriers to entry in terms of media. And I used to think about this in terms of, you know, perhaps sports columnists, right? And someone like Bill Simmons, who has grown to be a mogul in his own right, used to lament and complain about the fact that Dan Shaughnessy wrote at the Boston Globe for 30 plus years. There are some barriers to entry in terms of newspapers, but that also implies a level of quality control there. Because you have editorial things that you need to go through. Now, the death of newspapers is interesting to me because some of that is beyond their control. For instance, the loss of classified advertising uh, has basically hollowed out the entire newspaper industry. But in the absence of that, we're sort of in the Wild West where there are no barriers to entry. And that brings with it its own unique and, in my estimation, worst set of problems.
0: Yeah, in, in, in fact, I, I've argued that there are three structural biases that are specific to Twitter, and one of them is the lack of any barrier to entry. That's, that's <laughs> one of what I think is the three structural biases of Twitter. Um, I, and, and what it breeds, oh, so each bias breeds a particular kind of communication. And the lack of a barrier to entry, I mean, basically, Twitter is too accessible too sim- and too simple to use. Um, and consequently, what it breeds, I argue, in terms of communication – is impulsivity, where you have people, um, um, speak, thinking and speaking in highly impulsive ways mm. that are rooted in affect and emotion, um, rather than logic and thought, you know, sort of guttural reactions, um, from people that if they spent literally 10 seconds thinking about wouldn't end up on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Right? Uh, and so that, That's kind of been my observation about the the, the platform. Then add in the character limitation. Um, and another structural uh, limitation is simplicity. Look, I appreciate as much as the next person, the funny things that get said on Twitter because, you know, brevity is the soul of wit. And so you read clever things on Twitter all the time, but you never read sophisticated things on Twitter because it structurally disallows it. You, You can't say anything really sophisticated on Twitter. You can say things that are clever. There's a difference between clever and
1: complex. No, and I agree. And even if you read like a long tweet storm, even that is sort of, that, that's like arduous to read. Yes. The, the form, even if if it's the most nuanced thing, you know, you'll read and it's like one slash and you go, okay, how long does this go? And you get down to like number 37, you go, okay, to hell with this. I'm done. Whereas if you read an equal amount of words in say uh, a newspaper or a book or something you'd go okay this is nothing this this took me no right. time at all but when they're in bite-sized tweets like right. one after another after another you go okay no this isn't worth it like you get to it already that's not why i'm on this platform right i think that's exactly right that it's fascinating to me and it it's interesting to me too uh i want to touch on something that i'm sure i don't know you probably still don't do this but back when i was working with you in grad school. And that's one of the beautiful things about going to grad school. So we're at Colorado State University. You were the inside member of my thesis committee. And you get to know your professors in ways that you don't as an undergrad, because you're working more closely together. It's it's very, very rewarding. If you're interested in your field of study, it's fantastic. And I'd recommend it for anyone who's an enthusiast for that. But one of the things you told me that I found absolutely mystifying, so this was roughly 2004, 2005, you told me you were watching like the O'Reilly Factor every night. <laughs> and like hate watching it, right? You go, I, I, I cannot stand this man. And it, he's espousing these terrible opinions about things. Yet you watched every night. What was that a byproduct of? And are you still in the business of hate watching anything?
0: Uh, it's, it's a great question. Um, I, 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 remember, I don't remember specifically sharing that with you, but I remember that period, uh, that dark period in my life <laughs> <laughs> uh, of, of actually su- uh, subjecting my, myself to that. I've always been a big believer that it's important to be able to communicate across political
1: difference. 100% agree with that.
0: I, I have to tell you, um, th- there are a few things in the world that scare me more than dogmatism from any ideological perspective. If if you are unwilling to critique your own views and perspective, at that point, critical thought has shut down,
1: Mm -hmm. right? Agreed.
0: To be perfectly frank, I'm as um, anxious and um, scared by dogmatic discourse, regardless of where it occurs on the political spectrum. I I do identify more strongly um, with the left uh, and the progressive uh, movement in my own uh, politics. But I don't think I have final answers to, to questions. Um, and I think healthy diet, walking debate is really important to us living in a pro- productive and democratic society. So I was concerned about the discourse that was happening on the right. But if I was going to critique it, I wanted to understand. OK. And so th- that's what led me to um, several years of, of watching pretty consistently, Fox News virtually um, every evening, because I really wanted to understand the politics there, um, the ideology behind it, and the discourse, so that I could talk across that that
1: barrier. Okay. that I mean, that makes really good sense to me. In some ways, it reminds me of the movie Private Parts about Ho- Howard Stern, where Pig Vomit, played by Paul Giamatti, is like, okay, uh, you know, he's, he's getting stats, and some underling says... You know, the average radio listener listens for X amount of time. The average Stern listener listens for an hour and 20 minutes. He's like, what about the people who hate him? The average Stern hater listens for two hours and 30 minutes. Um, most common answer given, I want to see what he'll say next. And I bring that up because I think about the Huff Post's decision to cover candidate Trump at the time under their entertainment section. And what's odd to me is at what point did we start using news or did the banner of news start becoming more about entertainment i mean you you've talked about the deleterious effects of news on democracy what did you say the di- the deleterious state of news media at what point do you think that happened was it the advent of the 24-hour news cycle what in your estimation do you do you have a sense for that
0: I I do. Um, And I'm going to be clear that I'm I'm cribbing here from um, a a book that's been very influential over the course of my career. Um, It's a book that the first time I read it, I didn't like very much um, because I've always been. a—I grew up from a pretty young age with a television in my bedroom. Uh, (laughs) So I watched a lot of TV as a child. So did I. Uh, And so I love television uh, and continue to to be a a heavy consumer of, of television. The book that influenced me was uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to to Death, which is a profound indictment, (laughs) Um, uh, but not of what people think it's an indictment.
1: Right, yeah. It's It's a great book, by the way. uh, It's
0: it's a fabulous book. People think it's an indictment of television. It's not. It's an indictment of uh, television to do certain kinds of discourse. Mm. And he basically says television is probably the most sophisticated medium ever invented. For instance, to do some of the thing entertainment, uh-huh. right? It's great at entertainment. And, and if, you, if you want to entertain people, at least at that particular time in history, there may have been no better way to do it um, than television. But it's really lousy to do politics. It's really lousy to do religion. It's really lousy to do education. And there, there are certain types of discourse in our society that we ought not be trying to do on television. So right. what spawned my interest really in Trump was my recognition even before he was elected that, you know what, the currency of television has declined and been replaced by social media, of which, you know, like if, if, if at one point we lived in the age of print and we transitioned to the age of television, we're, we're, we're transitioning now to the age of social media or the age. Of, so the, the age of television has been relate, replaced by the age of care. And so what I wanted to understand is what happens to political discourse when you filter it through um, Twitter. But the question you're asking really is what happens to news when you filter it through these platforms? Yeah, And it's not pretty, uh, right? It, it's, not, it's not a positive thing. News did not survive being filtered through television, didn't survive at all. What we got was uh, political entertainment. And that actually occurs across the political spectrum. I mean, I'm reflexive enough to tell you that at least in form, There's not that much difference between Fox News and MSNBC. In ideology, there's a significant
1: difference. Sure.
0: But in terms of form, both of these are really political entertainment networks. And to call either one of them news networks um, compared to, for instance, something like the New York Times or the Washington Post um, is farcical. They shouldn't be in the same category.
1: Yeah, it and it's odd to me because with the 24-hour news cycle, there's there's literally only so many things that happen, mm-hmm. right? I, and you end up having to cover them the same way. And so what you end up rewarding is the most outlandish opinions because everyone's looking for a new patch of tillable earth that, that has not been done to death over the previous 18 hours of TV that they've talked about this one issue. So the opinions get more and more sort of untethered and outlandish. And some of that sticks to people. And that, you know, is, is taken as fact. And our brains, I remember reading this somewhere, our brains over time tend to flatten out info and we can't remember, uh, what's fact, what's opinion, or even where we heard it. And I think about a gag. It's a throwaway gag in the movie Inside Out. You've seen that. Yes. Pixar, the emotions yeah, sure. inside the little girl's head. They're on the train of thought and she knocks over a box and she goes, Oh, these facts and opinions look so similar. And Bing Bong, the imaginary character, just scoops a bunch of them up. He goes, ah, happens all the time and just drops them in the box. And I thought that is such a brilliant gag and so indicative of our times because you'll hear something somewhere. You can't remember what it was from or if it was a fact or an opinion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what you're really pointing to in, in my estimation is the way that these different media platforms, which I've talked about with you having different kinds of biases, these biases, um, don't just influence our patterns of communication. I believe they fundamentally rewire our brain. And I, when I, I'm, I'm not, this is not a metaphor. I'm suggesting that habitual use of different communication technologies literally transforms the way individual human beings think. This is again, not an original insight of my own. It, it dates back at least as far as Plato, who pointed <laughs> out that, that writing destroyed memory, right? When we started writing <laughs> things down, you didn't have to remember it anymore. Uh, and so, you know, you know, Plato went on a screed about, um, you know, the, the danger to memory, really, the complete uh, abolishment of uh, uh, a memory. Right. I mean, prior to the invention of writing and people forget that, like that everything in the history of humanity had to be invented, like we invented <laughs> writing. It's a technology. Right. We invented the alphabet. It's a technology. And these these technologies, we don't just use them. They use us. And these technologies transform us, um, and we evolve as human beings in relationship to these um, technologies, right? And so humanity itself is constantly in a state of evolution. And this is the one place where I guess I part ways a little bit with Postman. Postman always struck me in in amusing ourselves to to death as a little bit nostalgic for the past. (laughs) Right. I'm not, I'm not asking us to get rid of social media. I'm not asking us to get rid of television. Um, I recognize that they're part of our modern lives today. We're, we're no more likely to, to get rid of the technologies that provide us, um, enjoyment and, um, happiness and in many cases, um, unhappiness in some cases for sure. But oh, yeah. we're, we're, we're no more like, likely to get rid of these technologies than far simpler technologies like a hammer. Right. <laughs> Right. Um, So the question is, a hammer is really good at doing certain things and really bad at doing other things because a hammer has its own biases. Right. Uh, Right. Um, And, you know, like,
1: God, I miss talking to you.
0: you There's just certain things that you probably ought not to try to do with a hammer. Like, you know, buff a scratch out of your car. Don't use a hammer. right? Uh, Right. Yeah. There's certain things we ought not be trying to do with Twitter.
1: Hey, don't tell me what to do, Snowflake. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, it, no, you're absolutely right. That, that's a remarkable way of framing it, um, particularly as it pertains to Twitter as a tool and as social media as a tool. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a Swiss Army knife, no. right? And even a Swiss Army knife isn't good for everything.
0: Yeah, look, Twitter, yeah, So let me say something positive about Twitter, just like I said something positive about uh, Donald Trump earlier in this Fair conversation. Twitter is the most successful emergency broadcast system ever invented.
1: Oh, sure, yeah.
0: If you need to inform the mass public quickly about so if you need to disseminate information quickly and it's a simple message, never before has there been a better technology.
1: That's a fantastic so, point.
0: Twitter's great at that. And if that was the primary thing we use Twitter for in the society, you would, n- I would never write an article about Twitter.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, or, or if it were just used, uh, for jokes, like my favorite genre of Twitter is weird Twitter. Yeah. Like, do you, are you, are you familiar with weird Twitter?
0: I'm not specifically weird Twitter, okay. but Twitter in itself is pretty weird and it entertains me endlessly.
1: But I mean, you, you get it. It's basically just absurdist humor, mm-hmm. um, delivered in these, these really super convenient packages. And I mean, a writer for Parks and Rec and The Good Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a woman named Megan Amram who basically was discovered making jokes on Twitter. And so in terms of comedy delivery, if you are using Twitter as your comedy delivery device, it's pretty darn effective. And it's pretty, uh, it's pretty enjoyable.
0: Yeah. No, so one of the things that I've always appreciated about Twitter because of its, the brevity of its form, it actually lends itself to humor really well.
1: Yeah, really, really well. But uh, unfortunately, uh, it's it's kind of like when you have a political ideology. If you're Republican, Democrat, whatever, you have a set of principles that you like. But in order to sort of get on board with that, voting is unfortunately binary in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, you get everything else that kind of comes with it. You say you're a fiscal conservative. Okay. You also have a 3,000-year-old earth. And you go, uh, okay, you know, I, I don't, I, I believe in evolution. I believe in the history of earth. Uh, so I got that on my side, you know, it just as one example. And I have to get this joke out because as soon as you said it, and we're long past it, but I wanted to say Plato, or so the Buggles covered Plato when Plato said writing killed the memory star. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is that fair?
0: Yeah. Nice. Nice. I love it. <laughs> okay. Yeah not an actual oh, laugh you know your bottles references very much before John but but I'm with you
1: yeah no uh I I remember that too because I think I was TAing a class for you and we just put together like it was the video editing class yeah and we put together a little music video just to show all the different things you could do and we happened to use that as our song so it popped in my head so you know you get together the references start flowing but uh, yeah yeah nice <laughs> and it it's funny too because this form of entertainment News as entertainment, I think, has been around for a while. I asked my dad when I was a kid why there are so many newscasts on TV, and he said it's cheap to produce. And so I think about something like ESPN, where now all it is is a, a string of talking heads one after another. It's like CNN, but about sports, which is an even smaller universe, which has made that infinitely more insufferable to watch. Right,
0: right. No, it's – it's um, you know uh, – it's one of the most inexpensive forms of television to create, because even if you do have a, a star, you typically only have one. So if you, you just think about, you know, your typical situation comedy, right, um, you know, you have an ensemble cast. Um, you're paying potentially all of those um, individuals in the millions of dollars. But if, if you just have one news personality, and, I'm, and I want to be clear, I'm not even talking about a journalist. You have one news personality. You really only have to, to pay one person an exorbitant salary. Right. Now, obviously, there's all the people who produce the show um, and all the work behind the scenes. Um, but you know, it shoots; every, it can shoot every day.
1: You, you know? don't have to change sets. You don't have to right. like. You don't have to provide costuming. There's there's right. there's no props involved. Like there might be a little bit of video production, so you've got some sort of trades people there doing this: right. editors and news directors and you know, camera operators and things like that. Right. But the overhead is much much lower. Yeah, which is, I, uh, it's just it's strange to think about the economics of that, and you understand why it becomes attractive.
0: Yeah, and 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 of course, the the maybe the closest thing to uh, our our modern uh, news landscape on television is reality reality TV.
1: Certainly, yeah. Um,
0: I mean, there, there's a number of obviously uh, parallels between those things, and of course, we now have a president who was schooled in that mode of. Television. Yeah, so-
1: it's it's interesting to me um, in terms of this book. Is it a book that people are interested in? Like, because again, it's it's almost impossible to escape Trump in terms of your own consciousness. Um, Are people hungry for this? Like, for a take that you have done, and like, what has been the reaction to your book? Are are people interested in in it? Is it a walk uphill trying to sell it? Where are you with it?
0: So uh, I, I actually I, I I don't know anything about the sales data of of the book, and that's just, just being transparent about it. I actually don't know anything about the sales data of of, of the book because it's not why I wrote it, and and um, and royalty payments um, with books are so delayed based on when you publish them. Okay, that I actually have seen no money from the book at all yet. So did you get uh, an
1: advance or anything like? No, I did not
0: get an advance. I got. There was there was no money um, changed hands at all in, in the writing of the book. Um, I wrote the book because I, I I wanted to get the message out. Um, I, I wanted to, to to warn the public, and I, I will say this and and th- you know this was a choice I made because I was concerned about what I saw happening. Okay. The book then became a platform to be able to talk to journalists um, and other professionals. Um, and share hopefully some of the insights of the book um, with a a, a broader public audience. So in addition to doing a a bunch of interviews in the last um, two years um, related to the book, I've also had the opportunity and feel very fortunate to have done this to write a lot of op-eds and in in the last year and a half, I've published two dozen op-eds, you know, in USA Today, Newsweek, more in Newsweek than anywhere else. For for a while, I felt like I was on staff at Newsweek (laughs) Uh, um, and, and, really picking out um, things that I was noticing in the news cycle and trying to get people to be reflective about the broader significance um, of the things that I was noticing.
1: Okay. So you viewed this almost like as, as a public service because you were concerned and you subjected yourself to this many speeches, this many tweets. I I think you had like an editorial assistant helping you curate some of these tweets and things like that. But I mean, that, that's kind of a lot to subject yourself to. Are you burned out talking about this?
0: Uh, I'm getting there. Uh, I'm certainly exhausted, which we, we sort of started at the top with. Yeah. Um, yeah. At one point, um, you asked me, uh, was I still subjecting myself to, um, uh, uh, Fox News? The answer is no, I don't have to. I read the president's tweets. <laughs> um, right. So, yeah. uh. I tell you, so a lot of people think that that and the president's uh, Twitter behavior, by the way, has been remarkably consistent over his entire life, actually, not just. um, So one of the things that the book does is compare his Twitter use when he was just a citizen, when he was a candidate and and since becoming president. Right.
1: And and that's a fascinating part, by the way.
0: um, And and, and what I found was actually there's not that dramatic of difference between the way he's used the platform. He really has the same sort of uh, major, major goals. But here's the thing that I do think is interesting, John, is that there has been one dramatic shift in the president's use of Twitter in the last year. And I mean dramatic shift. And, it's, and it, I've actually seen it reported on almost nowhere. It used to be that the president's Twitter feed was heavily dominated by his own messaging.
1: Oh, and, he, yeah.
0: and he has switched to retweeting others. And now his Twitter feed is dominated by retweets. I regard this as a significant transition, um, and it's one that I've heard very little reporting on. Um, to, to if, if I guess if I were to say that there was academic news in our conversation today, the academic news is that the president doesn't use Twitter um, in the last year; uh, hasn't used it the same way he's used it the rest of his life. Why, why? Um, now he, he really uses it to amplify voices that support what he's doing or are uh, favorable. So he's basically created his own new silo, which is Mm -hmm. completely his way of creating an impression, a really false impression, but his way of creating an impression that these are in any way mainstream ideas.
1: Yeah, well, I was going to ask you why you think he's doing that. And I, I think that's as good an answer as any. Also, I think he's paranoid about the polls that he sees. And you need to create at least uh, an illusion of a large base of support,
0: right? And and that, unfortunately, for him, or or I think at some level, maybe even if only sort of uh, intuitively, he understood this. You know, you mentioned earlier in in our conversation about how at, at some point he's even attacked um, Fox News mm-hmm. because Fox News isn't even um, enough of a singular perspective. For- Right. Um, to create the illusion he wants to create. So he's created his, really his own media environment, um, using social media, which is entirely, um, self-praise, entirely unquestioning, which is, by the way, the kind of behavior he expects from everybody who works for him.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Yes.
0: So, so he has created a complete information vacuum around himself and he tries to get his followers and and, and I make the distinction between the book, the book in the book between uh, Trump followers and trump voters right uh, for me they're, they're, you know um, a follower we 're really talking about mindless behavior there and if all you ever do is consume uh, information that 's in the trump universe right it 's actually hard to see how you'd think anything other than what he would want you
1: to think. right
0: it, it's, there, there's, there's really
1: no dissent in that. No, uh, agreed. And I, I think that distinction is important because I know a lot of people who kind of twisted themselves in knots voting for Trump in 2016. I don't know how many of them will do that again. I, I don't care to speculate, but you know, reasons such as, uh, the Supreme Court or, you know, issues that, that are sort of almost trying to absolve, absolve yourself of voting for such a contemptible man. And I I talked to a number of people about that. They said, look, I got to hold my nose and do this for reason X. And I go, okay, like it's it's not one that I certainly identified with, but I heard them. And I I was willing to listen to them on that. Still disagreed at the end of the day, but that's a distinction between a Trump voter and a Trump follower. And I just wanted to provide a little more color on that. You're absolutely right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Look, I disagree with people who voted for Trump. And I know this is unpopular to say right now. But I'm going to say, they may not be bad people. I agreed. I, no, I, I agree. I, I, I disagree with their decision. Um, and I wish they hadn't uh, voted for Trump. And I, and I hope they'll reconsider that vote, um, uh, going forward. A Trump follower is, is, is different altogether. And it goes back to um, what we were talking earlier about uh, dogmatism. What scares me about the Trump follower is that, um, at that point, critical thought has shut down. Right, and what you just said, and you said it so nicely, John. It was really a, a beautifully put point. A lot of people who voted for Trump twisted themselves into knots and pretzels to do that. That shows me they were struggling. Mm-hmm. They recognized that there there was moral. Um, they were making some kind of moral choice there, and it wasn't an easy decision. Right. What scares me is the people who still uh, who still follow Trump and still support Trump, and there's still no critical thought.
1: Uh, they see this man um, espousing very, very vitriolic and hateful rhetoric. And they go, that's my guy. That that is what frightened me.
0: Yes. Yeah, me too.
1: So, okay. Real quick, before we get out of here, when you're not thinking about Trump, when you're not getting interviewed about him, when you're not writing op-eds about him, what kind of scholarship are you working on? And like, what's, what's coming up for you? In your new gig, what are you most looking forward to?
0: Uh, so take, take the question about uh, scholarship first. I continue to do the work that I've always done on, um, on museums, uh, and places of public memory that continues to excite me a great deal. So I'm, I'm really interested in how, um, particularly official sites of memory, invite us to um, understand the past in particular ways and what kind of citizens they ask us to be. What Mm -hmm. what has united my work on public memory um, and my work on Trump and social media is a concern with citizenship, um, which has always been at the heart of my scholarship and, and a concern with identity, national identity in particular. I'm still excited about that. I still continue to do work on that. The museum that I've written about um, most recently is the mob museum in Las Vegas. I haven't published on it yet, but I'm, I'm working on a piece. i um, with a co-author right now. Um, that's, that's about um, the mob museum and the way that we tell the, the history of the mob in the United States.
1: That's interesting. Uh,
0: in terms of what I'm excited about um, and also um, a little freaked out about and, and and anxious about uh, in terms of the, the new job is um, the COVID moment that we're in is a rapidly evolving um, situation and you just have to be adaptable and flexible in the contemporary moment. So, you know, that, that situation around us is is changing, you know, as we speak um, right now, it's changing rapidly. And so trying to plan uh, for fall semester in the contents of, a, of a, a rapidly changing pandemic is to say the least a challenge.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I remember you most as professor talking about media like we did we did media studies and you know writing essays about South Park and uh things like that. but I remember your work in public memory and i I think that is experiencing a moment as well as we talk about monuments yeah um you know as as we talk about uh the ways in which we either remember or commemorate those from our history and i mean you <laughs> You found yourself in yet another moment here, where where those things are certainly at the forefront of our consciousness. I mean, I, I even think about there's more dialogue right now about Mount Rushmore than yeah. there has been in my entire life. Right. So,
0: yeah, 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 people are sort of suddenly aware of of something that's been kind of life's work for me, which <laughs> is that um, the way we remember the past matters quite a bit um, to who we are in the present. Um, and I and I, I think that sort of the the average um, citizen doesn't, doesn't think um, reflexively about the fact that memorialization is always about the present, that we, we memorialize as a way of servicing our needs in the present. What we choose to memorialize, the way we choose to memorialize it, it's actually not very much about the past. It's really about who we are and who we want to be in the present. And that's why these sites um, that, um, and these individuals that we've chosen to memorialize have become so troublesome and problematic um, because of the moment that we're in um, as it relates particularly to racial justice and trying to figure out like, so what, what are we saying about ourselves yeah. um, and our group identity? You know, that this is a complex um, terrain and I don't think that there are simple solutions. As a general rule, I believe that problematic discourse Ought to be met with more discourse. So I, I, I think you know, like th- there are some situations where probably taking down a monument is, is the right decision. Another way to approach this sometimes is let's add counter memorials next to them
1: hmm. um,
0: that contextualize those memorials that help us help us understand the history of violence um, and racism that they.
1: I think that's an interesting way of approaching it. And your, your point about memorials are not about the past; they're actually about the present. Reminds me of something semi-related, and it has to do with when someone like Prince or David Bowie dies. You'll see people bleeding all over their social media accounts, you know, recounting memories. They're sort of about the memories, but they're more about what the person is in the present because you remember a time in your life when you listen to Prince a lot, or maybe you went to a David Bowie concert. And in that moment, it is thrown into relief that you have to reckon with who you were then versus who you are now. And probably as part of that, you remember who you were then, imagining who you'd be in the future. And perhaps that image doesn't square up for you. And ultimately, the net result is sadness. It's not about the person dying. It's not about the monument itself. It's about reckoning with who you are. That's pretty much what everything is about, is it not?
0: Yeah, so beautifully said, John, Uh, you're you're trained well. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Well, (laughs) pat yourself on the back, at least partially for it.
0: (laughs) Really, truly, uh, that, that's a beautiful sentiment. And so much of, I, I mean, we just lose sight of the fact that the, that the ways we communicate, what we communicate about, and how we communicate about those things are really expressions of self-identity. If we were all sort of more cognizant about that, we live in a far better place.
1: Agreed 100%. Well, Brian, I find you to be an absolutely delightful person, a brilliant scholar, and a good friend, man. And so this, to me, was a real thrill, a real pleasure. I know we, the frame with which we were sort of talking about this and the reason we're here is our president, but anytime we get to connect like this, it's a privilege and a thrill. So
0: I feel exactly the same way. Thank you so much uh, for, for giving me the opportunity to chat with you.
1: You bet. Before we get out of here, plugs, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of this book, if they want to get exposed to your other work? Where are some places they can do that? Anything you want to plug, it's all yours.
0: Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm the department head at Missouri State University now. Um, people can just Google that and, and, and look me up. Uh, um, my book, The Twitter Presidency, is available on a- Amazon.com. And, uh, then I, I also maintain an active presence on, uh, academia.edu, where most of my scholarship, uh, is available. And, um, all of my editorials are available on, uh, muckrack.com.
1: Uh, so. Fantastic. I will link to all of that in the companion blog piece, johnofalltrades.us. Also available in the show notes if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any of a billion other podcatchers that are out there. You can find all the links there. Dr. Brian Ott, what a thrill. And I wish you continued success and good luck in the new semester. Thank you. I appreciate it, John. Great to see you. And that'll do it for episode 259 of the John of All Trades podcast with Dr. Brian Ott, head of the communications department at Missouri State University, also the author of the Twitter presidency, Donald J. Trump and the Politics of White Rage. Be sure to check out those links on the John of All Trades companion blog piece, johnofalltrades.us, or in the show notes, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or a billion other podcatchers. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us training, content, engagement, and podcasting. I will help your organization tell its story to the audiences it cares about in a brand new way. Hit me up. Email is jon at deftcom dot Be sure to check me out on social media. That's j o a t pod on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Facebook is the only place for exclusive episode previews. Those go up on Mondays or Tuesdays of each week before each show. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. Please hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes will come directly to you. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. All of those things help with the visibility of the John of All Trades podcast. I adore you you for taking some time, letting me be a part of your life. I'm back here next week with another great show. I cannot wait to bring it to you. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're staying sane. I hope this year is finding you prosperous. Please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Wear your damn mask. Wash your damn hands. I'll see you back here next damn week. And until I do, say goodnight, crazy.